This weekend will be devoted to looking at one particular practice, which is, in many senses, a slightly poor relation in Buddhist practice, which is the practice of kindness. It's talked about a lot, but doesn't seem to take up its place as one of the key practices within the traditions. Now, the Buddha himself calls the practice of loving-kindness the foundation of the world. It's, from his perspective, one of the ways that we can release ourselves from the constant circulation of stress, suffering, despair, depression, all the sorts of things that beset us in the modern world. Now, the Buddha is speaking two and a half thousand years ago, and I don't think things have changed that much, um, in the sense that we still need desperately to have at the very heart of what we do kindness. And so we'll be exploring this over the weekend, exploring ways and practices that have come down through that two and a half millennia that can still resonate with us today and actually change our lives. And I always say, actually, these meditational practices should come with a health warning because they can seriously change your life. Um, And they're meant to. Uh, That is the whole purpose of them. Now, I just want this evening, this is going to be a brief introduction. I'm not going to speak too long this evening because a lot of you have come from distances and only just landed here and probably feeling a bit tired so I'm not going to bore you tonight by speaking too much. One of the things I want to explore just with you this evening is the place of metta practice, the word that's used for kindness and loving kindness in particular in this Buddhist context is a word called metta. And I'll say a little bit about that as we go through. But I want to place it in the context of the kind of practices that you might have come across, um, other what's generally called meditation practices. Now, I just want to make clear that in many senses, what we're doing is not meditating. Um, It's a very popular word. It's very much a word that's in contemporary usage. But what we're doing is we're attempting to cultivate The actual word in Pali and Sanskrit means to bring into being, to actually grow something. Um, And to grow um, in your mental continuum in particular, to grow kindness. And that kindness will start with yourself and then will spread out and diffuse towards others. And I'll say a little bit about that as well, the importance of it in our own lives and directing it towards ourselves. So there are a range of practices, some of which you may have come across, some of which you may have even practiced yourself, such as calming practice, uh, ability to quieten the mind down by gaining concentration and effectively bringing about states of ease and relaxation. This is not an end story in Buddhist practice. It's a beginning, it's a tool of gaining concentration and gaining relaxation and feelings of well-being through that concentration. So you're growing some calmness in your mind. This is what you're attempting to do. And we'll do a brief little meditation this evening, which is effectively a calming meditation. You can do it anywhere, actually, by the way. The other practice, which is actually more commonly associated with this retreat centre, which is insight practice. The practice and development of growing insight, growing insight into the nature of how things are, how they really are. 
in a sense, the whole of the Buddhist tradition offers a challenge. And the challenge, actually, I don't really like the term Buddhism, by the way, because if you translate it literally, it means wake-upism. Because that's really the way it should be translated. It's about waking up. This is what it is. And it's waking up or having insight into the way things really are so that we can live with them. And they don't cause us distress and suffering and pain and all the things that we get. And the goal of all of these practices really is the ending of that. The ending of generally what is termed suffering. I think suffering is an overloaded word here. Um, but it's bringing about some greater ease by living with the way things actually are rather than fighting and railing against them. In many ways, the goal of all the practices is the practice of equanimity, the practice of you know, having, in a sense, a calm mind, a mind that is unfluctuated, undisturbed, no matter what is going on in your life. That is, in a sense, freedom from distress. And my preferred suffer, my preferred word, instead of the word suffering, is we suffer from distress, actually. Uh, and that distress can be from just minor discomforts, um, the discomforts of not getting what you want, being with somebody you don't want to be, being in a place you don't want to be in, and so on and so forth. And this overcoming of distress is really what is the goal of all of these practices, including the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice, which we're going to explore over the weekend. Having insight into the way things really are, this is, in a sense, the main investigation behind all of this. All of these practices, no matter whether they're calming, whether they are vipassana, insight or whether they are metta. They're all aimed ultimately or all in the service of learning to discern the way things really are so that I can live with them. Things such as the patterns of distress that we create for ourselves. And this is really at the heart of much of what is going on in Buddhist meditational practice. Hence I'm using the word again, although it's not entirely accurate. This is what's going on, beginning to discern the patterns that we create for ourselves, which are distressful patterns, to have an insight into the ways that we create them. Now, this is clearly saying that there's something in a way which is coming from our own minds, which we add to experience. In other words, we make the unpleasant even more unpleasant because of the way that we react to it. And these patterns of distress, which I'm just alluding to here, are, in a sense, patterns of reactivity. They are not patterns of activity. In other words, we react to so much of what is going on, and we react habitually. We don't actually see the way things are. Now, one of the big things in the whole of this practice is to see (coughs) impermanence to see that things are transitory. Things are arising and passing away. Um, Very little is actually under our control. I came across a lovely little saying, and I always wished I coined this. I really say this almost every meditation retreat I teach these days, which is relax, nothing is under control. (laughs) 
Because that is, in a sense, the way things are. They are not under our control. We have the illusion of control. We like to feel we have some mastery over our situation and then something will come along and show us that we haven't. Um, and change was written into the warp and woof of life. Now, if we are grasping at certainty and stability when everything is changing, then we are bound to find it painful. We are bound to find it distressing when things change, when people around us change, when situations change, when jobs change, when the environment changes. No matter what the change is, it will cause us some degree of pain, irritation, distress, because it's not the way I want it to be. We want certainty, we want solidity, we want stability in life. And life doesn't actually often give us it. It doesn't really provide that certainty for which we often grasp. So part of these practices, again, is uncovering for ourselves our reactions to things the way they are in their impermanent transitory states, including ourselves, because if everything else is changing, we certainly are. You know, it's, I always find it rather strange that people say, you know, we can, we can basically grasp this idea of change intellectually and really kind of nod our heads sagely and say, yes, everything is changing, everything's really changing, but not me. <laughs> I'm not changing. Yeah. Now, as you can see, not only is it nonsense, it's also arrogance as well to think that you're not changing as well. So everything is changing, including yourself. Your patterns are changing, although some of the habit patterns are deeply, deeply ingrained in the ways that we approach life. Now, why is metta, this practice of loving-kindness, so important? Well, I always remember when I first started off in Buddhism, which was a long time ago, something like 37, 38 years ago, and one of the things that Eastern teachers were very struck by, particularly in those days, because it was the early days, really, of the transmission of a lot of this stuff to the West and to Westerners, was how much Western people didn't really like themselves. There was a kind of sort of self-loathing that was often there, not for everybody, but the majority of people that many of these Eastern teachers came in contact with, they found that the students didn't actually like themselves very much. There were aspects of themselves which they denied or repressed, didn't accept, wanted to run away from. Um, And so there was this lack of self-acceptance. There was this lack of being able to hold themselves with all of their problems, with all of the foibles that they had, with kindness. And the problem with this is, of course, if we can't hold ourselves in some kind of kind attitude, in some kind of kind gaze, then it's very difficult to do it to others. Many of the problems that we have in the world these days are actually through the lack of things like kindness and compassion in the world. They're there, but of course the brutalisation of people in the world is there almost a hundredfold much more than the kindness and compassion that's often part of the human condition. 
So the first place that we have to begin, and we'll be doing this tomorrow morning, is to begin by generating some kindness towards ourselves, beginning to learn to hold ourselves in a kinder attitude, to treat our minds a lot more kindly, not to compartmentalise ourselves into the bits that we like and the bits that we don't like. The tendency is, of course, when we do compartmentalise ourselves like that, we fragment ourselves. And the problem is, of course, when you, for example, there are aspects of yourself that you don't like or don't want to approach, then you repress them. And um, really, I'll joke about this, but it's serious as well, is you can't keep a good repression down. Because what will actually happen is it will come out in some place. It will come out as some other form of mental distress or sometimes even as physical distress in some way or another. So this is lack of acceptance. So metta is a practice that starts at home and it starts with radical acceptance. Beginning to learn to accept the way that we are. Going back to my wake-upism, it's waking up to the way that we actually are. Many of us have ideals, um, often ideals that we find we can't live up to as well. Things we would like to be but are not at this moment in time. This process of acceptance, beginning to kindly accept ourselves as we are, is starting from where we actually are. Not where we would like to be, but where we actually are. That includes the sides that you like and the sides that you dislike of yourself. Learning to befriend your mind. It's a strange, and I'll explain this more tomorrow, it's a strange phrase, but it's learning to befriend ourselves, to befriend the process that we are. In beginning to do this, then... Rather than running on empty when we're trying perhaps to extend a little bit of kindness towards others and find there is no reserve, nothing there to give, if we are starting to develop it towards ourselves, then the chances are that we will find some reserves in order to help others, to be with others in a kindlier fashion. Now this is not soppy, this kindness. This is a kindness which is really an interaction with others as it is an interaction with ourselves. The actual word in Pali and Sanskrit actually has an adhesive quality to it. So what brings people together? So kindness and compassion, both of these words in the original language, have this idea of adhesion, bringing, a stickiness that brings people close together. Whereas some of the unwholesome mental states, which we're all too familiar with often, anger, irritation resentment, grumpiness, all the sorts of things that we have drive people apart. So the development of kindness, starting with ourselves, beginning to extend it towards others, is the starting to form real relationship. Real relationships. Relationships which are not based on eros, on sexuality, but relationships which are based on a real kindness towards other, a real seeing of the other. And this is the beginning. It's not the end. It's the beginning. Because out of the soil of kindness, in Buddhist thought, grows the flower of compassion. It is out of that soil. So what we are doing in developing this 
and attempting to develop this is learning to lay down and to till the soil in order, order to cultivate the flower of compassion itself, which, as I say, arises out of it. So this is the work that we're doing, and it's extremely important work. You know, not, I would just say it's human work. It's not Buddhist or non-Buddhist. It's human work. It's the work that, in a sense, any of us who want to live to our full potential in this world, and I mean that's the real full potential for developing insight, compassion, and these things, has to engage in. So I tend to see this outside of traditions. This is, this is very, very human work. And if you like what takes place in a retreat like this over a short weekend is just beginning to start to learn to engage in the processes. And even if you came, come on longer retreats and do much more of this work, where does it have its real effectiveness? Not here, out in the ordinary world. That's the only place it makes sense. That when you're in your ordinary situations, confronted with your worries, your anxieties, all the stuff of ordinary daily life, or when you're just in your work situation, confronted by the irritable person, the irritating person, that perhaps you can begin to extend a little kindness towards somebody. Also, these virtues, of which we're just looking at one this weekend, these virtues such as kindness, compassion and joy and equanimity, these are what oil our relationships with others. They smooth our passage through the world. Instead of that passage being a passage which is friction, which is creating distress as we move through the world. There's a lovely image that's used in a very ancient Chinese text, which is uh, that the Buddha walked through the, through the world with bliss-bestowing hands. And I always contrast that with ordinary human life, which seems to walk through the world with a wake of destruction behind it, usually. And I don't wish to be cynical, but I just mean the ordinary things that we engage in which cause other people pain and ourselves pain in the world. Now, this is not intentional, most of this. It's unintentional. It's a consequence of not living, in some senses, with awareness. So what is the other side of this practice? It's the development of awareness. So we're developing awareness, we're developing a mindfulness to be in this world that doesn't necessarily come easily. So it's training, it's a practice that we're actually beginning to engage in. It's a way of looking at the world, ultimately. So instead of looking at it through the eye of anger or irritation or whatever it might be, that we begin to see others and what is in the world, even the non-human others, with kindness. And again, as you can see, if you reflect on it, this brings us into a closer relationship. So it's not just enough to see... And to see clearly, we have to begin to love what we see. And that means even sometimes the aspects, the darker aspects of both ourselves and others. Because generally, if we begin to understand our own processes and the own, our own ways of creating distress, 
then we often begin to have clues about the way others are functioning. Now, much of our ways of behaving can be through our own pain, our own woundedness, our own, you know, our own struggles with life, to move through life. Perhaps one of the governing things behind most of our search in life, if you're at all coming to anything like a meditation practice or searching in some way, is to find some comfort at ease in this world, some degree of contentment. The Buddha says the greatest happiness is contentment, is the contented mind, a mind that rests, that's not constantly, constantly grasping after novelty, after newness, but allowing things to be as they are without that constant grasping, that constant thirst, which is, uh, again, a literal translation of a a Pali Sanskrit term. This thirst that we have for novelty and newness, uh, it's a desire that is never at an end. Now, the form that this takes, of course, in most of contemporary life, hopefully not for yourselves, but most of contemporary life is governed by this craving for material and sensual objects. Much of the problems of the world have been created by this constant grasping after the material goods of the world. However, if you've ever reflected on this, how often does that search, the search for happiness through materiality, through money, through power through fame, through wealth, through any of these things, how often does it give you peace and contentment? It's rarely at an end. You rarely find anybody who settles contentedly with what they've got. There is always the constant search for more, the constant search for security. If you've got it, you don't want to lose it. Not only do you want to acquire more, You don't want to lose what you've got, so you hold on desperately to this. From the Buddhist perspective, all of this causes us pain. All of this causes us pain. This constant search for things which are not eventually going to make us happy or content, the constant demand on them to make me happy, the constant demand that's placed even in relationships, on the other, to make me happy, when this can never come. Now, all of this, including the metta practice, turns around upon not looking for the external to make us happy, the things, others, places, whatever it might be, wherever our attention devolves on, but to actually turn it around and look for that peace and contentment within our own minds, And the starting places, or one of the starting places, is to learn to accept ourselves. So the process of developing kindness towards ourselves is not an arbitrary start. It's not something plucked out of the air. It's the place that we necessarily have to start. A place of radically opening up our heart towards ourselves. A place of acceptance in which we can learn to accept the darker side as well as the bits that we like about ourselves. So that we're actually beginning to reorient the mind, to change it around. 
Now, as you can probably gather, this is not, um, there's no promissory notes, there's no nirvana at the end of the weekend. You know, that doesn't happen as quickly as that. It's a long-term practice. Um, it's a practice which I say can seriously change your life because your life inevitably changes through engaging in these things if you stick with it. So it's this movement initially starting of turning around and beginning to look at where we are creating our own distress. Learning to, in some senses, unravel the tight knot that we've created for ourselves within our own lives. In one particular place, the Buddha says, who's going to untangle the tangle? And he's basically saying, not me. (laughs) I'm not going to untangle your tangle. The only way of untangling who you are is by doing it yourself. Beginning to untie this tight knot of pain that we are often creating for ourselves. And why do we do that, you might ask? A kind of rhetorical question. Why do we do that? Well, we seek for happiness, we seek for contentment, or whatever it might be, whatever the word is that you find more comfortable to be with. However, we misplace it. We look for it in the wrong places. We often look for it, as I've been indicating, in the external. Looking for it outside of ourselves. Instead of beginning to undergo this process of reorientation, developing kinder attitudes towards ourselves beginning to develop compassion towards ourselves and towards others. So that we begin, and it is a beginning, to come closer rather than further apart from others. Now, all I can say is I think this is a deeply, deeply necessary process. We've only got to look at some of the things that are going on in the world to become aware that really kindness and compassion are not optional extras. They are absolutely deeply necessary in our world in the 21st century as much as they were two and a half thousand years ago when the Buddha was talking and speaking and teaching. They are necessary for all the obvious things that you see in the headlines of the news day in, day out, the violence and the aggression that we see enacted in ordinary life. What the development of kindness does is it starts to temper some of the anger and the aggression which is within all of us. It gives us a picture of the mind also that is full of what we call wholesome qualities and unwholesome qualities. And so what we're beginning to do when we engage in a practice like the development of kindness is we begin to bring to the forefront of our mental continuum more wholesome qualities. Not just for ourselves, as you probably know, when you met somebody who's genuinely kindly, genuinely compassionate, they touch everybody who's around them. They have a visible, almost palpable effect on those who come into contact with them. I mean, a very good example of this, and only simply because he is such a kind of major figure, really, in the world, the highest-profile Buddhist, probably, the Dalai Lama, I mean, people who come into contact with him are visibly touched by his genuine kindness. 
Um, I don't know if any of you have come across a book called The Art of Happiness. Anybody come across this book? In this particular book, he describes the Dalai Lama um, when he was on tour in America once, and he was going off to give a talk, and this is just indicating really just the simple acts of human kindness that can be there. He was going to a talk, and he saw somebody who was a lady who worked in the hotel who was just doing the cleaning of the bedrooms, and he deliberately went over and shook her hand and said hello to her and everything else, and then went off to give his talk. The next day he came down, there were about three of them, and he went over and he talked to them, and he shook their hands and went off and gave his talk. By the end of the week, they said the whole hotel was there, <laughs> waiting for him to come down in the morning. Yeah. And these are just the very simple acts. These are the simple gestures of kindness. In fact, the phrase some of you might have come and heard him say, the Dalai Lama says, my religion is not Buddhism, my religion is kindness. Um, this is what I teach, and this is what I attempt to practice. So that just that visible sign when you come into contact of genuine compassion, genuine kindness, touches people around us. Now, there is something that the Buddha says which really, I think, shows us, and something I will read to you tomorrow. It's a very, very short thing. But something that the Buddha says in this particular piece, he says, to live with kindness, there is no better way to live in this world. There is no better way to live. Not an optional extra. There is no better way to live than with this. In, in the traditions, it's also said, and again this is the end of this particular piece, is one who lives in this way, one who practices in this way, will not be reborn again. Now there's many, many ways of interpreting that, but it, in a sense it's showing that kindness itself is a path to what in Buddhism we call liberation. And what is that liberation from? It's not liberation to a Buddhist heaven because there's no such thing. Yeah? There is no Buddhist heaven as there is no Buddhist hell. There is only here, this place, where we are. And in a sense, if you want to use those terms, heaven and hells, it can be our heaven or it can be our hell, depending on how we see it. Of course, if it's our hell, then it's often deeply, deeply tinged with distress and suffering and pain and misery and depression and anxiety. And I could give you a whole litany of terms. I'm not going to, because I don't want to make you miserable at this time of night. Um, but I could give you a whole litany of terms about the way that we make being here a hell for ourselves. However... The absence of those things is not another place. It's still here, but seen differently. T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets, one of his famous poems, says, after the end of all of our exploring, all of our journeying, is to return to the same place and know it for the first time. And in a sense, this is what we're engaging in. Everything seems familiar, all too familiar. What is familiar from a Buddhist perspective, is the world tinged with greed, aversion and delusion. So much so that the Buddha says everything is aflame with it. Everything is burning with greed, aversion and delusion. That's not others, that's us too. We're all aflame with these things. There is a cooling down of these things, of the flames of greed, aversion and delusion. And one way of affecting this and the liberation from the almost automatic pain 
that living in that way will bring is the liberation from those pains, those ills, and finding greater repose, not in an activity, but in an activity which is deeply, deeply engaged. And the development of kindness is the first step towards that. As you can approach it in many different ways, the ways that I'm going to be exploring with you over the weekend is that we approach it through this way, because this is a very human way. It touches others around us. There is an aspect to this, of course, which, and I'm going to say this right up front and I'll say it again, is that initially, of course, sometimes we don't feel kind. We don't feel it. We don't feel necessarily compassionate in this world. So what do we do in the absence of feeling? Well, we still behave kindly and we still behave compassionately. In fact, I remember in part of my own training when there was a a Western student with a Tibetan teacher, Tibetan Lama, and he was complaining to this Tibetan Lama and he was saying, you keep telling us to be compassionate, but I don't feel compassionate. He said in a very kind of annoyed and angry voice. And the Tibetan teacher looked at him rather quizzically and said, feel compassionate? I just said, behave compassionately. (laughs) So there's nothing necessarily in the early stages about feeling it. But what we're doing is starting almost behaviorally to orient the mind towards compassion. So that actually if we start in a sense to practice it, rather than just feel it, perhaps the feeling will come along as we do it. So there is a behavioural side to this as well, which is in a sense mentally inclining the mind towards compassion even when you don't feel it. This is what we will be doing over the weekend. Well, I think I've probably said enough for tonight. I've spoken for about half an hour or so, or just over. And I just wonder, there will be practical things which I'll talk about in the morning. Um, We'll do a short meditation this evening, just to finish. And we're going to start just uh, tonight and the first meditation in the morning just by doing a very, very simple meditative practice, concentrating on the breath. Many of you will know it and be very, very familiar with this. But what I want to do, and even if you are familiar with this, is introduce metta into this practice. Because it really should be the heart of all of our practice. You know, particularly if you've been practicing for a little while, and if you're starting off, well, this is a very good way to start off, um, if it's all new to you, is by actually beginning to hold this kindness at the beginning of any practice. A Sri Lankan meditation friend of mine once uh, said, and I don't want you to be doing this, um, this is the only reason I'm saying this, is that he said to me once, he said, when Western people seem to get meditation, they tend to make their lives even more miserable. <laughs> that is not the goal. <laughs> so if you're making yourself more miserable, something is going wrong. <laughs> you know, so it's a good indication that something is awry if that is happening. What is, if we have kindness at the very heart of our practice, hopefully it will never take that turn. So I just want to see if there are any questions um, from what I've said this evening. And don't worry if you haven't got any, because I can all understand if you're all too tired and just really want to head off to bed quite soon. Um, but I just want to open it up and see if there are anybody who wants to ask anything about what we'll be doing this weekend.
To deal with? How do you kindly with torturers and bullies? Yes, I mean, I'll, I'll actually... I won't answer that this evening, but I will pick up on it, because I, you know, there's, there's something really fundamental there. It's, it is that, of course, there are people in the world who will do harm, and there always will be. It's understanding where that harm comes from. And I think once we begin to understand that, then it doesn't make us like what they do, but it makes us perhaps not hate those who are perpetrating it. And I think it's about how we hold it. That's a kind of very simple response, but remind me tomorrow night, and I will pick up on talking about that a little bit further. Because that's the very real world we deal in. There are a lot of people doing some very nasty things out there. And how do we hold them? How do we, how do we approach them? Just as a quick, actually just on the back of that, one of the things I think is not the right way to go about it is by hating them. Um, ultimately it probably doesn't touch them but does us a lot of damage in that process so it's really understanding what's going on but please ask me again tomorrow in the evening anything else anybody wants to raise okay there isn't that's it you had your chance (laughs) it's gone (laughs) Okay, first of all, first thing about being kind to yourself, and particularly I'm speaking here more for those who haven't done much meditation, is get comfortable. You know, it really is. There is no point in, in basically trying to cultivate pains in your knees <laughs> or pains in your back. That's not being kind to yourself. You know, so get yourself into a comfortable position. A position, hopefully, you're not going to have to shuffle around too much you know, during the course of, you know, our standard, we won't be doing this this evening, but a standard kind of 45-minute session. So that's stage one of learning to be kind to yourself. Now, the whole practice, and please forgive me for those who've done quite a lot of practice, but the whole practice really is about starting from where you are. So to start from where we are, let's not apply any technique initially. So close your eyes if you prefer them in that way. Traditional posture, meditation posture, is actually the eyes half open, looking downwards. If you ever see these statues of the Buddha, you'll actually look at him and see his eyes are half open, not entirely closed. And when you've got yourself into a comfortable position, find a comfortable position for your hands. And Just in a sense, check out how you are at this moment. Not with the desire to change it, because you you always want to change things. Remember, this is a kind of radical acceptance. See what emotions are around for you. Or even if it's just tiredness, just see it, acknowledge it. There's this great impetus to want to get in to change things. If I'm tired, well, perhaps I shouldn't be tired. If I've got this particular emotion, perhaps I shouldn't have this emotion. No, I'll try and change it. But just learn to relax and settle with whatever is there for you. And when you've done that and 
I'll leave you to decide how long you want to do that for. You then just begin to direct your attention towards the movement of the breath. And we do this by basically taking our attention down to the tip of the nose, around the mouth area. And generally you'll find in the nose, in the nostrils, you'll find a slight sensation occurring when the unwarmed air passes over that spot. And direct your attention towards that and you'll find something similar happening when the air is expelled, when you breathe out. There'll be a sensation of the warmed air passing there at the tip of the nose. And so you just let your attention, your awareness, rest gently so there's no grasping after the movement of the breath. It's all very gentle. Just keeping your attention there for as long as you can without straining, without forcing. Letting it rest there until perhaps you find that your awareness has drifted off. You got caught up perhaps in thought, images, emotions, feelings, whatever is there. Now avoid the temptation then to drag your attention back straight away to the movement of the breath. Just stay with whatever has arisen without trying to follow it through any further. If so, if it's, uh, if it's thought, don't get caught, up in any, get caught up in it any further. But certainly don't repress it either. Don't try and shun it, push it away. So that you acknowledge what is there. You actually, and this is the kindness, you begin to befriend what is there, just by holding it much, much more kindly, in a much more kindly fashion. And only when you've done that, when you've befriended, acknowledged, seen what is there, only when you've done that do you lead your attention, your awareness back gently, kindly, back towards the movement of the breath. Just being with its rise and fall. All occurring naturally, you're not controlling it. There's no control here. Just letting it rise and letting it fall away naturally. Whether it's long or whether it's short, it doesn't matter. Holding your awareness there for as long as possible without straining, without forcing. Until you drift off again. And then you go through exactly the same thing again. Acknowledging what's there. Seeing. Noting and befriending. 
and then gently and kindly bringing the attention back to the breath when you've done that. Now it doesn't matter how many times you do this. Even in the course of a short session, you might have to do this loads and loads of times. And this does not mean you can't meditate. This actual process of acknowledgement, of seeing, placing your attention on the breath, drifting away, this is the process. It's learning to pay attention. And that's what we'll do in this session and the session early tomorrow morning.